Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Oh, my progressors, today is an exciting day. Valerie Plame is here. Valerie is a former career covert CIA operations officer, casual, who's now running for Congress in New Mexico. She's a badass. Valerie's name became public in 2003 when her then-husband, former Ambassador Joe Wilson, wrote an article challenging the Iraq war narrative and calling out the lies that our government was telling us which then caused Valerie's name to be leaked to the public in retaliation. This created a life-threatening political scandal, which was filled with character assassination campaigns, defamation, harassment, and worse. It was fascinating to talk to Valerie about this whole experience, how they made it through the firestorm, and the parallels between what happened to her then, and how our current administration is treating whistleblowers today. She told me how she originally got into the CIA, what that process was like. I mean, at least she shared everything that's not still classified. And why she's decided to get back into the public eye and run for Congress. Valerie is incredible, and I can't wait for you to hear this discussion. And if you live in New Mexico, I can't wait to see you on her campaign trail. Thank you so much for for being willing to do this. I think that your story is so incredible. And I think to speak to what we were just discussing a bit before we began our interview, you've had this incredible career in the United States intelligence community. You've worked Mm -hmm. for government. You understand the stakes in ways that so many people simply do not. And... I think your perspective also as a woman in these arenas that have historically been run by men in this country is mm-hmm. fascinating. Mm-hmm. And and what you've been subjected to, obviously, because of that is 
wild. So thank you for coming. Oh, with, with, with pleasure. And it's been quite a journey. And I'm sure you saw that great photograph where Nancy Pelosi is standing up, wagging her finger across the cabinet table in the Roosevelt room mm-hmm. uh, at Trump. And it's all white men, old white men. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is the only woman at that table, mm-hmm. or at least in that photograph. You know, it just came out like a, a week ago. Yeah, it's wild. It's stunning. Anyway, there's but, much work to be done. So. Yes, and apparently Let's get going. she's she's the only adult in the room who who's there, there admonishing this uh, sort of mafia rule we're experiencing right now, which is wild. But before we before we get into your career, I I always like to go back and ask people if they were at all the way they are now when they were children. <laughs> I'm curious, you know, were you were you a tiny my mom describes me as a little Joan of Arc in the cradle, just wanting to fix things. Were you, uh, were you like that? Were you on a mission to, to protect and serve and investigate? And, and how, how did, how did this a, all come not about? Not at all. I come from a family of public service. My dad was an Air Force officer, a career. He served in World War II in the South Pacific. My mother was a public school teacher and uh, my brother was a Marine who served in Vietnam. He was wounded there. So there was definitely this notion of public service. And so when I was asked to join the CIA, I really jumped at the opportunity because it seemed like a way to be able to do that, uh, to continue to that, that that was something noble, that was something to aspire to. I definitely did not grow up thinking I wanted to be a spy. I had no idea it was a something you could do. I do remember reading A Man Called Intrepid about William Stevenson somewhere where I was 10, 11, 12. It was about World War II and the Enigma machine and all the espionage that revolved around that, you know, between the Axis powers and, and the Allied powers. And that was intriguing, but it's I, it, I can't say, it's, oh, it set me on the path. It was completely uh, haphazard. I only knew, I think I would, it's fair to say, I didn't want what I guess you would call traditional or conventional life. I always knew I wanted to explore, live abroad, travel abroad. Uh, I did my undergraduate work at Penn State, which was, you know, the quintessential school for college. Just, But I also, and it was great. I loved it. But I also could not wait to get the hell out of central Pennsylvania and begin. My plan B, if I had not gotten into the CIA, was to apply to Peace Corps for the same thing. I th- There's a streak of idealism, a curiosity about people, and of course, the, the draw of the exotic. Wow. And as a kid, when you talk about wanting, as I think so many people do, to get the hell out of Dodge, wherever it is that they've grown up, what what drew you? What did you see? Where did you want to go? Did you did you have postcards of places or posters on your walls of, of mm. places that you wanted to see? I traveled a lot with my parents growing up. We traveled what's called Space A a lot, which means you just kind of wait around uh, until the cargo plane has three empty seats. So my parents and I would jump on and go wherever it was going. Uh, so I had traveled quite a bit. And I just knew I wanted more of it. My parents, we very, very modest, very middle class, but the the extra money they did have was always spent on travel. And from an early age, I 
understood that people can live in a completely different way in a completely different culture. And it was just fine. <laughs> it was just different than what you were used to. And I think that was that looking back, what a gift they gave me. And so, and a curiosity about people. So when I joined the CIA, it was very much very clear that the bad guys were the Soviets and the good guys were the Americans. That was a bipolar world. And that felt like I wanted to be on the good guy's side. And over time, what developed was my expertise in the nu- on the nuclear threat. And I, that felt good too, because it felt meaningful. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to get into that. There's something that you said though, that I, I have to reiterate. I love that that you said that your experiences traveling with your family as a kid showed you that people could live in different ways and that all of those ways were okay. Because I think so many of us just with the way society works have been taught to fear what we don't know. And this fear of the unknown, we see having these mass ramifications of othering of people who don't look like us or live like us. And what an an incredible thing. The height of that, of the other. Yes. They don't talk like us. They, they don't look like us. And it is so primordial, isn't it? It's just us huddling in our little cave, looking out going, who, you know, who's, who's that tribe walking by there. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what's happening. And we should know better. I do, I do too. I despise it too. And and you and you would think that all of our historical experience, seeing the tragedies that can come from othering, we would be past it. But we keep repeat. We, we're doomed to repeat these mistakes for some reason. I don't know if it's two steps forward, one step back. I don't know. Yeah, you'd think we'd be smarter <laughs> collectively. We're not. <laughs> yeah, it's a wild thing to me. And and there is a. There's a, quite an age gap when you, when you mention your brother between the two of you, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. We, he's my half brother. We have the same father and different mothers. Okay. Uh, but I'm I'm very close to my brother. But he didn't get to uh, come along on all those travels. He yeah, was out of the house and sixteen you know, years, right? So he, I imagine, he was an adult when you know. Oh yes, out. I mean he he was he was only twenty one when he was wounded in the Tet Offensive of Vietnam. And I think about that. I think of my son being 19 and, uh, you know, sending your, I was actually looking at uh, old photographs last night. I've lost both my parents within the last decade. So still sorting through photos and books and everything. And I was looking at my photos of my father gone now, but he was an only child. And uh, his mother adored my grandmother adored him, and I can't imagine the pain of sending your one and only adored son off to war, World War II. You know, he where, uh, Pearl Harbor happens, and and he was already in ROTC, so off he goes. I just I can't imagine what that feels like. Anyway, so my brother, yeah, big age difference, and and he was off doing his thing. And and what. What happened to him when he was wounded at 21? Was he able to come home? Did he have to remain over there? How did how did that work technically? We didn't know. I was so small. But all I knew was we didn't know where he was for a couple months, actually. They had lost track of him. Wow. And uh, he finally, I think my father like wrote his congressman saying, can you help? And they finally located him because he was badly wounded. And I I don't know the details, but they finally located him on a hospital ship. So he came back and went through the whole VA thing. I have to say the Tom Cruise movie, 
born on the 4th of July. When I saw that when it came out a long time ago, it resonated with me, not because that was my brother's story, but I can imagine how he felt having been in combat. And then the next, you know, the next year or two after he had recovered, he goes to college in Philadelphia with, you know, kids that had never seen someone blown up in front of him and that struggle, which shows in the movie, the Tom Cruise character, whoever that was of trying to adjust to civilian life after the horrors of war, which of course we continue to see in the high incidences of PTSD in our veterans that come back. And, and we we were finally beginning to understand they are just as wounded on the inside as if, you know, they had lost a limb, but we actually have to do a better job at diagnosing it, treating it, understanding it, and integrating them back into civilian society. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's crazy to me that after all of these generational wars, you know, you talk about your dad fighting in World War II and your brother fighting in Vietnam and the wars that we're in currently, that we haven't gotten our act together to take care of our veterans. And that these men how, and women How is it? Remember John Stewart a few years ago? He yes. was on a rip as he should have been. But I don't think anything much really has really been done in terms of advancing, getting computer systems to talk to each other. I think there's a, my, as I run, I'm running for Congress. So when I talk to veterans throughout my district and throughout the state, it's a really mixed bag. Some people have a great experience and they are seen promptly and they feel their care is appropriate and, and adequate and others, you know, gee, they lost my file and, you know, it's been a year since, you know, it's, it's really mixed, but we, we owe it to them. We we made them this promise and we have to do better by them. Mm -hmm. Now that spirit of service in your family and you talk about how you set a goal to be in the CIA, but how does that happen? What's the jump from you being a kid who wanted to travel and, and serve the world in some way, whether it was the CIA or the Peace Corps? Take me through high school into college. What are you studying? How, how does a person go about oh, getting in the CIA? I definitely did not have that as a goal, but I was, I was... I did well in school. I always was on sports teams and cat leader and, you know, high school year boy, all that stuff. And continued in college, really involved. I can't say publicly exactly when I was recruited and so forth, but I think it's what I can say. It's a very long and involved process, as you might imagine. Lots of interviews and background checks and uh, exams and meeting with people to do little scenarios, security background checks, I mean, everything, right? So it takes a long time. And uh, it, in my case, it took about six months and I finally got the job offer. And I have to say that uh, by the time I got the job offer, I was quite enthusiastic. I might not have started out that way. I was like, okay, I'll try it. But long process. Ooh, I'm so curious. I'm like, is long six months? Is it three years? Is it it seemed like forever. It was six months. It just depends on how quickly they can do the security background check. At that point in time, I was among the first women that was being hired that was being hired specifically to go into operations. Prior to that, most women 
in the CIA in operations had started out, frankly, in support roles, you know, secretaries or safe housekeepers or something like that. And they got tired of being in that support role. So they worked their way up. When you say operations, can you explain what that means for listeners who don't know the the lingo in the way you do? Of course. Very, very briefly. So the CIA is divided into four directorates. The Directorate of Operations is the 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 nerve part of it. That's the whole raison d'etre of, of the CIA, which is to recruit foreign spies to provide really hopefully good intelligence to senior U.S. policymakers. There's the Directorate of Intelligence. There are the analysts that bring in all the information and are collating it and, and then putting it back out into the intelligence community. Directorate of Research and Development, R&D, the science guys. Like I always you know, think of Q and Bond. And then there's administration. So I was in operations, which is all about recruiting spies, foreign spies. Can you tell us how old you were? I mean, did you graduate college before you went in to the CIA? I did. Uh, yes, I'd, I'd okay. done my undergraduate. Yes. Okay. And you had graduated. But not graduate school. So you're essentially around your son's age. <laughs> you were a kid. I can't say that publicly, but you can do the math. Okay. Fair, 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 fair. Um, wow. Do you... Do you have memories that you can share from your first interview, what you were being asked, what that felt like to begin that process? So I, I do have one that just cracks me up every single time. So the woman who's interviewing me is this older woman. She has this perfectly coiffed hair and basically, as I recall, literally wearing a cashmere twin set and pearls, you know, just very proper. So she's taking me through different scenarios that what would you do in this case? What would you do in that case? And the last one, she says, okay, pretend you are meeting a male asset in a hotel room and you have lots of, you know, papers, uh, uh, very damning papers in front of you that he's passing you. This is a, obviously a highly clandestine meeting and you hear a knock at the door. It's a police, let us in. What do you do? And even though I was young, I had figured you, it didn't take much to figure out the only good reason for a man and woman to be in a hotel room together is sex. So I said, well, I'd start unbuttoning my blouse. And, you know, she could barely smile. But uh, I think that was the right answer because, you know, you have to come up with a plausible explanation on the spot. And if the police come in, you're just, you know, naked in bed. Okay, then, you know. So I guess that was the right answer because I, I did ultimately get hired. Wow. Yeah. Universal languages, I suppose. Uh, and and you obviously, you're getting asked questions like this, but you have to take tests as well. Can you share what any of those are? Are they IQ tests, aptitude tests, technical tests? Yeah, tests? everything. The, mm -hmm. the first test was sort of general current events. And I remember, and I always love to read the paper, so it wasn't a big deal for me. I mean, I just kept up on this stuff. But there was a question of something about the Congo. And there's actually two Congos in Africa. So I was like, well, which, you know, which Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo or uh, the other? And uh, so I felt good. I mean, I was as as sometimes you can be very uh, nonchalant about it because I didn't I didn't know at that time how much I wanted it and sometimes that leads to just 
being relaxed and doing your best. So, you know, one, one test led to another sort of thing. Wow. And then you get in, how do they tell you you're in? Do you get a phone call from someone? Does someone show up at your door? I think a letter. I think a, a letter. letter. This was snail mail days, right? This is wow. long before email. Right. So you find out you're in and then you have to uh-huh. report to Langley? You, you report to, go to, Virginia? to, yeah, to actually, no, first they do all the intake at a outlying building. Okay. And that's a big deal. You know, you're, you're, I can't remember. I guess it was before. So you've already taken your polygraph and you've had all these tests, but there's still, it was a big process. And there were um, a lot of people in my class um, it, that were being brought in that were noted to be going off into def- different parts of the agency, whether as an analyst or whatever. Got it. And so you get in, you have to report somewhere to begin whatever your training is. Mm-hmm. What do you tell your friends and your family? Because you can't tell them you're in the CIA now, right? No, of course not. They give you um, they give you a cover from the beginning. Okay. And there's all sorts of covers. There's a spectrum, I should say. On one end, there's business where you're not affiliated with the U.S. government at all. And on the other end, it's where you would have State Department cover you could tell your friends, well, I, I'm a foreign service officer when in fact you're really a CIA officer. Wow. So, and there's a lot of covers in between, but yeah, I mean, they, 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 they take care for that. Okay. They, so they, 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 they help you, you plan to say, wow. And I've heard it referenced and I, it's no shock to read that, you know, the CIA was originally kind of an old boys club. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Uh, what was it like to step into that environment? And, and and over the course of your career, have you seen that begin to change at all? Uh, um, no. Yeah, so totally the old boys club, Yale, Harvard, Princeton. It did, I would say it really did not begin to break open until the eight, late 80s. And there's still a long ways to go. So finally, there is a female director, Gina Haspel, finally. Wow. And I believe, I don't, I think two of the three directorates are headed by women, which is great. But that doesn't mean it's all, everything's great, of course. It's still, I think, still very much a man's world like everywhere else. Uh, there was a class action suit brought by women in the early 90s that said, and they won it, that women were simply not being promoted. They were not give, being given good assignments that would allow them to be promoted to the next level and so forth. And it was pervasive. It, it might be a little better now, but it takes a while to change these huge bureaucracies. Sure. Sure. You've also talked about how when you joined the CIA, at that time, no one would mention or talk about their politics. How mm-hmm. is that changing? Or is that still a requirement to keep your personal political beliefs to yourself? It was never a requirement. It was simply how people did things. Oh, interesting. I would say, honestly, I just noticed a huge change, not just in the CIA, but across the board of how people spoke about their politics after the 2000 contested election, Bush v. Gore. Mm. Prior to that, people, you know, it it was, it maybe sounds so old fashioned, but people really, you know, you don't talk about religion, sex, politics at a dinner party. You just kind of, of course, there were exceptions to that. Right. But 
it it was like that Supreme Court decision that gave Bush a presidency in 2000 cracked something open. And I think by and large, just by the nature of it, many of the people in the CIA tend to be conservative, you know, they're military. But of course, everything has been upended in recent years. There are no real Republicans left. I mean, my I was raised in a Republican house, which meant strong fiscal policy, strong defense, and and the social issues were never even touched on. And that's so different than where we are today. What do you, when you say there are no Republicans left, like the parents who you were raised by, what, what do you... Mm-hmm. What do you see in the party now? What what's what's the most shocking to you about the way things are going at the moment? The most the most shocking thing to me is that elected leaders in the GOP who should know better, who do know better, are saying and doing nothing. They are truly putting party above country. And it's not just elected official, officials in my mind, it's also leaders of faith, business leaders and so forth. Because the flagrant abuse abuse of power that we are seeing by Trump far goes far beyond partisan politics. I, uh, there's no Republican Party left. What do they stand for? Definitely not fiscal responsibility. The deficit has ballooned, and you remember yeah, when it was creeping up dollars. under Obama, it was oh, you know how terrible, how terrible. The deficit is far bigger now, and no one says anything. It used to be. Uh, the Republican Party really stayed out of social issues. I thought the I mean, they're so intellectually dishonest, disingenuous, don't even get me started. They believe on one hand, the government should stay out of your business. Except as my girlfriend likes to say, the government, the GOP wants to be in my vagina. In other words, deeply within (laughs) our decisions, what women's decisions should be concerning choice and, and so forth. And I think this started, this trend started under Reagan, talking about the so-called moral majority and realizing that they could add on the evangelicals or court them as a voting block. And so where we are now is we have the evangelicals that are so strongly behind Trump who see him, if I hear imperfect vessel one more time, I'm going to scream. Uh, But I don't see anything about what he does or what his policies are, especially being on a border state, that anywhere resembles what Jesus might do. Right. That's the issue <laughs> if you I were have. Walking too, amongst us is that mm-hmm. faith is being used like a baseball bat to mm-hmm. bully for power. It has nothing to do with faith. It has nothing to do with no, morals. Nothing, it has nothing to do with the gentle, <laughs> loving demeanor that Jesus represents in, in the evangelical firmament. And I just, I, I find the uh, the hypocrisy to be outrageous. Yeah. It's wild to me how transparent it all is and how no one is willing to admit that what we are seeing is what we are seeing. And, and you hear people yeah. like Trump and Giuliani and his cronies literally say things like, the truth isn't truth. Don't trust what you see on TV. Listen to me. I mean, it's, yeah. it's Orwellian. Who are you going to trust, me or your lying eyes, right? Yeah, it's really, it's really frightening to me. And it's an odd thing when, to your point, you see people who, who purport to have any kind of faith uh, behave 
so greedily and 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 people be so short-sighted and and even you know I I had this debate recently about our healthcare system and our education system you know and I said the fact that we supposedly can't pay to take care of our own but we can find a 600 billion dollar surplus surplus not even budget a surplus for the military and I said that money's not going to career service members. That money's not going to our men and women in uniform. It's not paying for new Kevlar for no. our uniformed officers it's, it's who are on it's the front lines. It's guns versus butter. Yeah. And money always, where you put your money tells you where your priorities are. It's very simple. Yeah. yeah and it's, so it's very, it's very strange to me. And, and it's interesting that you, that you point to the Bush-Gore election as, as the tipping point. I, I watched a documentary about it not too long ago. And and really getting to see the inside of it and getting to see that the Supreme Court just stopped a proper investigation into the election mm -hmm. and handed power over. I think so many people felt so oh, jilted betrayed. and betrayed. It was such a betrayal of, of, of our Constitution. And we're seeing it again. Indeed. I had held the Supreme Court in such, uh, such high uh, standing. And to find out that they were <laughs> as base partisan as as everyone else was really a painful realization. That's a hard one. What does it feel like, because it's close in timing uh, to what happened to you in 2002, when you see how petty and partisan people can be, people who are supposed to be above the fray and really put mm. country over party and really put America first, regardless of their personal feelings about anybody in it, when you went through what you did in 2002, which led to your exposure, which was a threat to your life, to be clear for people listening, in 2003, for, for listeners who don't know what you went through then, could you walk us through your experience I'll I'll do my best to make it brief. Okay. What happened was in July 2003, my then husband, Joe Wilson, wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times entitled, What I Did Not Find in Africa. And he went after the central premise that the Bush White House gave for the war in Iraq, which was an imminent nuclear threat. And he wrote that the intelligence had been cherry-picked and... The intelligence had been fit around the policy. Rather than the policy being made based on intelligence. Exactly. I see. Yeah, that the that it had all it was and it was a terrible foreign policy mistake. The Bush White House did not take that well. <laughs> and a week later, a conservative columnist, Robert Novak, who is gone now, revealed my name and my true CIA identity in his syndicated column. And so that began a years long crazy political firestorm. We were called, uh, Joe and I were called liars and traitors. And uh, it was, it was really quite a searing life experience. And then that chapter, I would say, ended in 2007 with the conviction of Scooter Libby, who was Vice President Cheney's chief of staff, and in fact, he, and he was, uh, he was just pardoned last year by Trump. Not that Trump has any idea really who he is. He was just sending a message to his squad that if you 
support me and protect me, I'll protect you. But well, and a specific message that if you support Trump over the intelligence community, which could oh, yeah. have disastrous recourse for the nation, you'll get pardoned mm-hmm. and it won't matter that you sold out your country. Exactly. Because, I'll take care of you. Because this idea that a conservative columnist would break your cover, reveal your true identity, reveal your position within the CIA, that quite literally put you and your husband's lives at risk, potentially your children's lives at risk. Mm-hmm. The The idea that our most valued undercover service people could be the victims of hit jobs by conservative <laughs> media. I mean, that's that's a really egregious, I, I consider as a person who spent a lot of time with armed servicemen in both the police mm-hmm. departments and, mm-hmm. in, and in the military, that to me, that feels treasonous to me. That feels... It was treasonous. I would agree. It was wrong. It was absolutely wrong what happened. This is, uh, they betrayed my CIA identity for their partisan agenda. Quite very simple. And and because your then husband held them accountable for lying to the American public. So That's it's right. So it's he doubly. Said that, he said that a lot. He's like, you need to hold your government to account for their words and deeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he. After that, that was 2007, and the day after, I moved out to New Mexico, and we started our new life out here. So what what goes on, though, for those four years? Between 2003 and 2007, can you walk us through that experience? I mean, what happens when you find out either online or on TV, that this has happened to you, that your whole life has essentially just been blown up. (laughs) Where are you? What's the reaction? And what's your first step to trying to figure out how to right the wrong? Uh, It just felt like being sucker punched. I had always lived and I was perfectly happy being anonymous uh, in my you know, what I was really doing. I had no problem with that. I knew what I was doing was worthwhile. I didn't need any more attention than that. It was really, it felt, as I say, like falling down Alice's rabbit hole where white is black and black is white. And there's all these, it was a huge media story for years. So there's TV and radio and newspaper and whatnot about these people named Valerie Plame and Joe Wilson. And I had no idea who these people were. It was really just survival, uh, just getting through that. My, my kids were little, so that was helpful because they really don't, they really don't care. They just want their snack and they want your love and your attention. So that was very helpful, but it was so disorienting the whole time. I mean, it took me years to come to terms with it. And it really wasn't until I, we did move to New Mexico and I got my feet under me a little bit that I thought, okay, if I have a voice, uh, how can I use it to, to draw attention to things that I care about, whether it's nuclear proliferation or uh, women's reproductive rights or education or whatever. There's a lot of issues in my state of my home of New Mexico that need attention brought upon them. So I, I did my best, but it was a long, painful journey. And what goes through your mind when, 
when you see the government giving out information that you and your colleagues know is not accurate. I mean, I you're watching, for example, there's a story about Colin Powell on TV. Uh, how, how does that feel as a service member to see someone else who's meant to serve put you in that position? I th- I think it just uh it of course you suffer a loss of faith and a loss of innocence not that I was so naive but I had a very steep learning curve when it came to politics in Washington from 2003 on I still have a certain idealistic streak in me I suppose because why else would I run <laughs> right. you have to you have to think that you can make a difference not totally uh, cynical. It's, um, yeah, it, I, someone asked me the other day, so what's worse, the Trump administration or the Bush-Cheney? And I said, look, you know, how can you compare? I would say that they both enormously damaged our country and our democratic values, each in their own special little way. It started under Bush-Cheney, where the American public ultimately felt deceived and lied to, as it was, about the reasons to go to war in Iraq. And uh, we haven't quite recovered from that before we're careening around the corner. And now we're in a world where Trump routinely you know, says a dozens of falsehoods a day just because he can. I don't know. You know, it's just it, it, it is a, a really weird time we are in. It's very dangerous Mm -hmm. in many ways, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to compare the dangers of both administrations. And and I think about the way it personally affected you, because back then, President Bush promised to fire anyone who was involved in revealing your identity to the press. And then, as you mentioned with Scooter Libby, (laughs) the leak was actually traced all the way back to Vice President Cheney's office. And President Bush did not keep his word. No one was ever prosecuted for the leak. Well, other than other than Scooter Libby. Mm-hmm. I, I One day I want to have a nice long dinner with a special prosecutor, Patrick Fitzgerald, because he came very close, I think, to indicting Karl Rove. But some prosecutors want to walk in feeling they have a 90% chance of conviction. And maybe he felt with Rove it was 85. I don't, you know, I don't know. Right. So who knows? There were def- it was definitely a conspiracy. There were definitely a lot of people involved yeah. in trying to smear Joe Wilson and make his. I ju- I just believe that his op-ed a- appeared at a particularly vulnerable moment for the Bush administration, and they felt they needed to push back. And they I don't know exactly what I don't know exactly to this day how they got my name, and but they decided to make it about Joe Wilson and Valerie Plame rather than. Gee, have you noticed there's no WMD in Iraq like we told you there was? Yes. Interesting. It's 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 smoke and mirrors. And I, I do wonder, I wonder how Robert Novak got your name in the first place and and well, why we did... do we do know how Novak got it. But mm. what we don't know is how the White House got it. I have my suspicions, but I don't I don't know for sure. Interesting. I, I just I wonder practically, you know, because you were still working at the CIA at the time and and that meant you weren't permitted to speak publicly about That's this. That's right. Not at so, all. So 
you had to face this barrage of stories about you that actually didn't involve you. They didn't include your perspective (laughs) in any way. Did you have to hire security? How did you, what, what did you have to do in your practical life to, to deal with suddenly having these national spotlights on you and to deal with a White House essentially using you as a distraction from their lie about weapons of mass destruction? Well, during that whole period before I could speak publicly when I was still a CIA employee, uh, it was Joe Wilson carrying the water for both of us. And he was defending our characters and who we were and what we believed in. And every time he said something, he was called, oh, there he goes, you know, sort of there he goes again. What a showboater. I mean, it was, it was awful. He really bore the brunt of that because you had the entire Bush Cheney GOP machine behind them to destroy Joe Wilson and his credibility for having noted that the emperor had no clothes, essentially. I'm being, you know, it's very simple, but that's, I'm just boiling it down. Uh, So we were just in, honestly, we were just in survival mode. You just try to, I, I, I had nothing in my life had prepared me for that. I was uh, still a young mother. Um, I loved my career. I was trying to be supportive of Joe, but I, I couldn't speak publicly Uh, It was just a very disorienting and difficult time. And to deal with the weight of a nation and falsehoods in the press and to have three-year-old twins, you know, to your point, to be a young mother, you had two babies. Yeah, it's crazy. That's a lot to juggle. What's that experience like as... I'm I'm so curious how when you're undercover in the CIA you get through a pregnancy and then how do you <laughs> how do you have this family? Well, I had let's put it this way I had already had a lot of career behind me by the time I was pregnant. I um, I had what was considered a geriatric pregnancy. I'm like really. Um, I think that term but, is so uh, rude. <laughs> yeah. So I thanks a lot. But by that time. So you know, my, my, my twins were born in Washington, D.C., and as I read about in Fair Game, I quite surprisingly, at least it was a surprise to me, I suffered pretty seriously from postpartum depression, just overwhelming sense of what the hell is going on. And I think it was just lack of sleep and chemical hormonal changes, yeah. and it, it was really difficult. So I took some time off and then... I went back to work and shortly thereafter, 9-11 happened. And uh, then, and then it all began, you know, the run up to the war with Iraq, first Afghanistan, and then the switch to Iraq. So in that era, in in the era of 9-11, doing the work that you were doing and, and having this expertise on nuclear weapons and proliferation and What's going on then? What's it like to be at the CIA then? What were you working on? You know, you're you're a young mom who's just battled postpartum. You've come back to work. 9-11 happens. What what does that mean that your day-to-day experience is? Uh, It was a intense and fascinating time. Of course, in the initial weeks following the 9-11 attacks, people were literally sleeping under their desks um, because, you know, we were just at going to war footing and and what that involves. Shortly after that happened, uh, as the White House began to focus on Iraq, uh, they set up something called the Iraq Task Force. And I was 
asked to go on that and work on operations. And, and it was just a, a, a crazy period of time. You're just working intense hours. I would bring my, my babies and then toddlers into the office on, you know, on the weekends because you don't always get childcare. And of course they have no idea where they are, but you're just trying to uh, work a couple more hours. It's just, it was just a, in the run-up to the war with Iraq, I, we were just working flat out trying to figure out what the state of play was with uh, Saddam Hussein's presumed WND program, nuclear, chemical, biological. And I'm not sure what you can share about how you investigate that program, but what what are you well, looking hopefully for? Hopefully you, re- you, you recruit spies to tell you about it. Hmm. That's the idea anyway. So you're attempting to recruit spies who work within his country and even in his government. That's right. Or where he's procuring, where they're procuring the material needed for any of these programs or do they, are the scientists going to a, you know, out of country conference? Can you meet them there? And it was just a really intense period of time. Wow. And and are there things you can share now that you learned then about where he was procuring chemical weapons and, and goods for the arsenal he was building? Or is that still all classified information? As it turns out, what really was happening was Saddam Hussein, it was a huge ruse. He just, he knew he was in a really bad neighborhood. He wanted to pe- appear as tough as possible. And he overplayed his hand. This, the United States thought that there was, or they assumed that there was nuclear weapons. As we got deeper into it, we realized that wasn't quite the case. But that's then you start getting in all the, it's a long conversation about uh, why we went to war in Iraq. Yeah, that's, I can't imagine, I just can't imagine what it must have been like to be at the forefront of that experience in that time. And and what does it take, you know, when you talk about the issues that you have focused on in your career, things like nuclear proliferation, global, you know, foreign policy, uh, things on top of what you're discussing now when you're running for office in New Mexico, how do you become an expert in those things? What is What does it take what are you reading? What do you read now, even mm. outside of mm. the CIA now? What do you spend your attention on every day to remain on top of it in these fields? How I would, I definitely was a liberal arts major. So it's not like I had the expertise uh, in, mm. from training or anything or in school. Uh, the government loves to train you. It's time, it's experience. I learned a lot. Mm. I asked a lot. I've always read widely. I, I continue to do so today. But it's the expertise was, of course, I mean, I understood a lot of the technical stuff because I needed to, but my expertise was actually in recruiting people to who had that technical know-how way, but may, may way more than I do. So I just, my expertise developed over time. My expert, I really think of myself, although I worked on the nuclear threat, my expertise is really people and trying to figure out what makes them tick. And how do you 
how do you do that? How do you approach people? Ask questions just like you're doing. People love to talk about themselves. And if it's genuine, if the questions are genuine and you do know right away, people are just, you know, everyone's experienced small talk at parties. Um, you know, right away, if someone's truly genuine in asking, really, what, what, what do you do versus what do you do? <laughs> you know, right. there's a, there's a world of difference right there. Absolutely. It's funny. Those are the things that even for me, when I'm, when I'm wearing my actor hat and I'm on sets, my job is to figure out what the energy is under the dialogue so that it mm -hmm. informs the experience two people are having in a scene. And it, I'm realizing that in a Absolutely. lot of ways, your job was the same. I would say we if you're good at your job in the CIA, you're drawing a lot upon probably the same skill set that you use on set. And it's not just acting, it's not being someone else, but it really is being very empathetic and being very aware to, to people's energy and what's going on behind the eyes, all of those things that you bring to your job acting. And if you're good, that's what you should be bringing to your job in the CIA. And it, you saying that just sort of made my head spin because I realized that in doing so much work as an empathetic observer throughout the course of your career, then when you and Joe went through this at-home explosion of your identity and your life, it was such a lack of empathy. It must have felt so surreal and foreign to you, even though you were here at home. It, it, it must have been so jarring and, and you write about it so beautifully in the book where you talk about how if you spoke out during those proceedings you'd lose your job but that if you didn't speak out it could doom your marriage and I'm curious how you got through those days what that experience was for you and Joe who could you go to for advice at that time no one Really. I mean, I had my friends and I had my family, but no one could really understand what we were experiencing. It was, I don't know, it was just white knuckling it, right? You I'm, a, I'm a lot older and wiser now. There are a lot of things I could have done, whether it was therapy or more wine at night or making sure I got better sleep. I mean, I, re I mean people, I mean, I, I smoked a lot of cigarettes on the back patio trying to go, you know, how, how do I, how the hell do I get out of this? How do I, it, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> I tried to get through it with grace. Um, the most, of course, that your children are safe and feel loved, but those years are a blur and not in a good way you know, not, not, a, not in a joyous way. It was just, I feel really badly for my kids because what happened really did take away a lot of that where you should just be focused on your small children and those joyful moments of, you know, what you see as a toddler and, and first grade and mm -hmm. all that stuff. And, and I feel that got taken away because I was always on guard, whether it was, someone, a photographer was going to sort of jump out of the bushes or 
or my phone would ring. Here's a development. Guess what? Judith Miller is in prison or what, whatever it might be. I mean, it went on and on and on. And I don't have any, I really don't spend any time feeling bitter against people who are not, who beneath my contempt, whether it's Cheney, uh, Libby, Rove, but I do get angry because they took away precious time that I will never get back with my children. So I had pictures. I'm, apparently I was there, but I wasn't really there. Right. Well, and that's such a common response to trauma and so many people who've experienced whatever degree of PTSD that they have through traumatic events talk about how you, you just lose chunks of time. And and I I have in this moment and and I remember reading your story in real time, but just so much empathy for the immense amount of trauma and pressure that you both were placed under. And I, I think that it's it's such a cool thing. I mean, you know, I I DM'd you when I saw your ad uh, when you announced that you were running because <laughs> I, I just thought this woman is such a badass. Look at her! I'm so like, glad you did. You, it uh, led to this. The ad was really fun to make. Yeah, and it it felt like it was such a great metaphor of driving backwards at high rate of speed is what is happening right now to the things that we care about national yes. security women's rep- women's rights everything right decorum the constitution healthcare all uh, of it everything everything yeah. we've ever hedged our bets on as a country moving forward and progressing to maybe achieve the ideals under which we were founded truly and completely mm-hmm. we're we're Move just toward them Mm-hmm. We're burning it. There are days when I I watch what's happening and I, I feel like I'm watching the flag burn. Yeah. That's how I feel. Yeah. We, oh, I think so many millions of us f- true, feel betrayed. Our leaders have betrayed us. Our democratic values feel imperiled. And it's not just like, oh, he's a, you know, he's a different party and I disagree with his new, no, it no, feels this is much more profound. And, and when you look at what's going on and you realize that the, even just the number of and level of impeachable offenses make Watergate look like child's play, you know, and, and that was like the greatest disgrace of an American president. I mean, just it's, it's really unfathomable to me. And, and I guess it makes me wonder from you choosing to to resign from the CIA in in 2007 to now announcing that you're running for Congress and and running for the Northern New Mexico seat for the listeners, what made you decide to get back in the arena? You know, what, what made you decide that you were ready to run? I think where we are in our nation's history right now, I feel that Donald Trump and what is left of the Republican Party are truly um, imperiling, putting into peril our democratic values. And I felt I needed to raise my hand and serve my country again. Maybe it sounds a little corny, but I wanted, I felt I, I, I have the experience and the background and given all I've been through, the judgment and problem-solving skills to really bring to bear for my home in New Mexico. 
I've lived all over the world. No other place has felt like home here. This is my community. I felt compelled to at least try. So that's what I'm doing. There's, it's a big primary. I'm in a big primary. There's 10 of us. The primary will be next June. And uh, I just want to be able to say I did my best. I felt compelled to try to do this because I want to help my community, but also uh, push back in what little way I can against what I see as a real threat to our democracy. And what issues for you when you when you think about your community and you have lived in New Mexico now for quite some time and, and you observe what's going on in, in the state and in your district, what are the issues that are most important to you right now to, to help your community? In the district, which is huge, by the way, it's, it's about the size of Florida, apparently, the three things I hear over and over again are education, employment, and environment. Extremely diverse community here. We have Anglo, Hispanic, Native communities. It is urban. It is very rural. It is affluent. It is struggling. I mean, there's a little bit of everything, but those three areas are the ones where everyone, no matter what their background is, I hear over and over again, environment, education, employment, mm. which in included in that, of course, would be healthcare. But that is the the people of northern New Mexico want to make sure they have a loud, <laughs> clear voice in Congress to address these concerns. And I would love to be given that honor. Mm -hmm. And what, when you think about with all your expertise and experience under your belt, what are the things that you want to create? What are policies that you would like to enact? Where where do you want to go first when you take that congressional seat? Mm -hmm. On one hand, so specifically to the district and the congressional district, uh, are uh, issues related to education, particularly pre-K and helping, you know, these are state issues, but the Fed at the federal level, you can absolutely provide leadership and funding and a voice for, and I, I think education is a foundation of everything else you want to do for uh, sure. going forward. Me too. I'm really proud to say that the New Mexico Congressional Caucus right now, all Democrats, uh, they really have done a beautiful job putting into place some protections to prevent fracking and drilling around Chaco Canyon, which is in the western part of the state. It's a ancient sacred site, and they were able to push back against attempts to sell off little piece, you know, pieces of land for extraction things. So that's exciting to be able to think you could be part of that to preserve our heritage and envir environmental issues. And then on the, the the national scale scale where I've done a lot of my work as an adult, it's everything from cybersecurity, concern about our elections, uh, being fair and and true and not being <laughs> not allowing foreign uh, influence. It's the whole nuclear threat, which under Trump has 
groan despite what he says. The guardrails are all off. I could have a we could have a whole other conversation on on the treaties that have gone by the wayside or not being renewed and why that's a bad thing. I would actually love your opinion on some of those things because Trump the, the amount of disinformation that he's been able to spread and 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 sort of these assassin assassination campaigns he's run on really good policy for us as America. You have such firsthand knowledge about, and especially when we talk about the Iran deal and the the, yeah. the treaty that was really keeping so much global stability in place. Can can you speak to that a bit for people? Because you're the kind of voice they should be hearing from on that. Yeah, very briefly. Uh, I believe that he is ignorant on the whole <laughs> issue of the nuclear threat. The unilateral withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, I believe, will prove, and it has already in certain cases, to be absolutely catastrophic. It wasn't a perfect deal, but no deal ever is. But it did do far more than what any expert thought it could. And it did what it set out to do, which is to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear capability. And now, so that's, you know, you can't do anything when you're no longer at the table. And even if suddenly we were to reverse things and we were to go back in, too much water, of course, has already flown down, the, uh, uh, you know, gone by so that in the river so that you can't step back in. It's a different river now. It's completely different. And of course, we're seeing a lot of struggling for regional hegemony between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So that's a problem. You have the New START Treaty that probably will not be renewed in 2022. That's a problem. We still have a, we have still have not renounced no first use policy. We have not yet said that we renounce nuclear weapons and first use, uh, which would do a lot to ratchet down tensions. Just in general, it's fair to say that our nuclear stance is uh, like the rest of the foreign policy, feckless, confused. No one really understands what's going on. And in general, it's fair to say it's worse. Wow. And I'm curious for your perspective on one other hot button issue right now. When you look at what's going on with the Ukraine whistleblower, because you went through your own experience with having your character assassinated because your husband was being was stepping up as a whistleblower at the time. What, what's going through your mind when you look at this Ukraine situation? And, and what do you wish that people in our government and in the media were doing differently in the face of this information, in the face of someone coming forward and saying, I believe that this is a threat to American democracy, the way that the president behaved in Ukraine? What, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you think about all this? I think that whistleblower is a very brave patriot, his, and we're pretty sure it's a he, his identity must be protected. I think Trump was inching closer the other day to saying that <laughs> he was ready to identify the whistleblower, which is outrageous, absolutely outrageous. I feel personally for the whistleblower. They knew this was not done on a whimsy. The whistleblower knew what he was doing. His career is essentially over. But he put together a very, by all accounts, a very thoughtful and credible report that may be the, ultimately the basis for the, we'll see what the impeachment, um, what the charges are, but that will certainly be one of them, the flagrant abuse of power. So I, I just, 
I just on a very human level, I feel for the whistleblower. His life as he's, as he's known it is done. Wow. Joe said in an interview once, if, if I can read a quote of his, he said that the strength of our republic actually depends on citizens exercising their responsibilities as citizens to hold their governments to account for what the government does and says on account of the people. And I love that. I love that sentiment. It reminds me that it's on us, that it requires, it requires all of us. Do you think that we're doing a good enough job of that today? Do, do you see enough uh, citizen pushback? Does, does the resistance inspire you? Well, I'm going to revert to Benjamin Franklin. Great quote. So when he stepped outside of the, the convention, he was asked by a woman, oh, Mr. Franklin, Dr. Franklin, what kind of government have you bequeathed us? And his reply was, a republic, madam if you can keep it. Mm. So it's on us. The onus is on us to question our government. Whistleblowers are a, a very important aspect of that, to point out when there's corruption, wrongdoing, incompetence. Trump right now is really a symptom of underlying problems with our erosion. I mean, he's, you can't, as much as we, many of us would like to, you can't put all the blame at his feet. A lot of this had been happening for a long time and we were not paying attention. We were patting ourselves on the back because we elected a black man president. We said, oh God, we're so, you know, how, you know, how great. And it was great for that aspect, but there are many other aspects in our democracy that were being chipped away at and not mm. least of which is in fact, maybe the biggest is Citizens United, which has to be the worst Supreme Court decision ever. And yes. uh, we have just gobs of dark money pouring into the political system. And it, it just distorts everything. And neither side, neither side is willing to actually address it in any meaningful way. Yeah. Hmm. It makes me excited. Do you know the, um, the group Represent Us? Yeah. Yeah. They do some really wonderful work for, for anybody who's listening. At there, home. There's some great groups out there. Yeah. They're doing, you know, it, I, I'm, I'm not totally in despair. No, but I think but... we have to be really practical and real about how great the threat to the nation is. And then I mm -hmm. think for so many of us, you know, who in our own individual spheres feel a bit helpless, organizations like that one, like Represent Us, that have 87% bipartisan support to get dark money out of politics, to start eradicating this corruption, that makes me feel hopeful because I think to myself, well, if the Supreme Court is going to be so partisan as to defend and uphold Citizens United, maybe it really is on us to start these grassroots <laughs> movements and, and change it from the bottom up. You know, I, exactly. I, I, I do believe in us and I, I get excited when we wake up and it's, it's why I'm so excited to, you know, support your congressional run and I can't oh, wait to see you take you. the seat. That means and, a lot. Come, oh come out gosh. to Santa Fe. Oh, anytime. Oh. Santa Fe is one of my favorite places on earth. I'm also curious because as you know, we've, we've touched on your book and for everyone listening, if you haven't read Valerie's book, do yourself a favor. It's, it's amazing. But I, I was so struck looking at it that CIA censors blacked out about 10% of the copy and redacted it. Mm 
So as you're reading through the book, there are just chunks missing that say redacted, redacted. Most in the beginning, yeah. Yeah, but, but but it's wild to, when you begin looking at it, to go, uh, oh, wow, this is what it's like to, to work in this arena. Are there still things that you want to say, but you can't? Uh, I have, uh, of course, there's things that you, you take a secrecy oath and you always, and that's forever. I would never do anything to jeopardize the assets with whom I had worked, the very sensitive covert action programs. And I have no, you know, that's, that's the deal. And I'm fine with that. It does feel good that I feel that in some ways I really have found my voice. And there is something satisfying uh, if I am given the honor of going to Washington, of being able to say, you know, I I lived through this, I survived, and now I can go back to Washington and set some work on things that I care about deeply. And there's a certain a certain satisfaction to that. I love that. And one thing I realized that, that we didn't touch on so specifically earlier is the issue around uh, your then husband, Ambassador Wilson, being sent to Niger. There was uh, there were accusations of nepotism that you had, you know, recommended him, even though in your letter you you said I wouldn't feel yeah. comfortable doing that. He could assist. I wouldn't send him. It's this is a this is a little too close to home. Uh, how did that all play out? Just for people who don't know the incremental details oh, of the make story. It very brief. I had nothing to do with his trip to Niger. Anyone who has ever worked for the government knows that. <laughs> There is about four layers of approvals mm-hmm. when, in, in terms of travel. It's just ridic- it's ridiculous. Yeah. He went pro bono. He only his travel was paid for. I had nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with his trip, asking him to go, other than going home and saying, "Hey, there's some people at this, you know, my boss at the CIA would like you to come in and and talk to you about a, a sensitive to- topic." Um, it was just another Republican talking point. You yes, know, of course. You know, nepotism. Give me a break. Like the irony. Like N- Niger is such a garden spot, right? I'm sorry. It's literally the poorest country in the world. It's absurd. But because the Republicans had the power to form the narrative for so long, mm-hmm. that still pops up. You know, yeah. and so it's just like, no, not really. And it was never part of the story. And it's got to feel so odd knowing that. We 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 laud this idea of service families, but then, as you both were then two two members of a family who were both in service to the government, you then got raked over the coals for that rather than celebrated for the fact that yeah. you both were succeeding in your own verticals. And of course, there's bound to be some sort of overlap. If you worked in the same building, you'd run into your spouse in the office, but that doesn't mean that you're in cahoots to be in that office you're already there of course, of course not it was just they were they were grasping at straws but yeah. of course they were way more powerful than we were at that time so their narrative stuck whether it was oh everyone knew who valerie was i mean she wasn't even covert or that joe wilson he's such a loud mouth or valerie sent joe to niger so that a year and a half later he could write this op-ed piece it's just fantastical Right, oh, that's but wild. if you have the power of the narrative, it's pretty, 
pretty significant. And what a valuable lesson for us now when when we look at the current administration and we think about accusations of nepotism and you see Jared and Ivanka <laughs> holding positions in the White House with dangerous effect. Yeah, I mean, it's, exhibit A. It's horrifying. Ivanka, Jared. Yikes. That's Indeed. A, that, is, that is a big yikes for me. Um, and, and, and it makes me nervous, too, that, you know, neither of them passed their background checks for security clearances, but were given know, security seriously. clearances by Trump anyway. That is outrageous. But every, that was like a story for 48 hours, and then everyone just moves on. I mean, there's so much news. We're so totally overwhelmed with news that we can't even absorb and digest things like that until you're on to the next crazy ass. But that's something I wish the media was doing a better job of. Stop focusing on the noise and focus on the news and keep beating the drum of why did two people who are completely unqualified and failed background checks by our national security agencies, why were they given security clearances anyway? That's dangerous to our country. You're right. The signal and the noise. We're missing it. We're missing it. Again, this is why I'm excited that you're running. There's one question I like to ask everyone. The title of the podcast is called Work in Progress. And I'm curious when you hear that phrase, what comes to mind as a work in progress in your life right now? Oh, great question. Patience. I'm always, I'm so impatient. And time has taught me that it can be healing, that things change, things that you are, what's good now might not be good later and what's bad now will change. But it's still a a fight. I cons- I I just wish I had more of it and could take a more expansive view. That's just not how I'm wired. All the, uh, all the meditative breathing in the world will not actually... <laughs> Uh, it's better, but, uh, that is my work in progress Mm. is patience with myself and with others. Yeah, I feel that. And I think especially when you are concerned with the world and when you have that spirit of fighting for the world in you, impatience comes along with it. You want things to be better faster. And I get that. Let's get going. I get that. Let's get going. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. Cast. Yes.